Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. The problem with uh, those kind of introductions is they elevate your expectations. (laughs) And then I have the pressure of living up to them. (laughs) Uh, Before I uh, get into the word with you, I want to ask you to pray for something. Uh, May 4th, I'm going to be doing a live stream event with brothers on the Eagle family that are believers. Uh, That's going to be an evening of football and gospel. Uh, It will go live on the 4th and stay, that stream will stay live till September. Uh, Worldwide, we expect somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 people will tune in. Many of those will not be believers. Uh, Worldwide, everybody's interested in the Eagles. I was just in Taiwan. When the men there found out I was from Philadelphia, all they wanted to talk about was the Eagles. (laughs) These dudes had never seen a football game in their life. If you handed them a football, they'd peel it and eat it, but they're interested in the Eagles, so you can be praying for that, that God will just bring hordes of people to himself. People who listen because, and watch because they're interested in football, but they'd find Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray in this moment because we need your help. We can have cold, disinterested, and fickle hearts. We're not always excited about the truth of your word. And I lack the skill to capture your glory with human words. So we pray that you would meet us, that you would do what we could not do for ourselves. And I pray as we leave this room, we would say God was with us and he did a good thing. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, he was eight years old, just a little boy. And he shared a big bedroom in his house with his brother. He was in his room playing and he heard the footsteps of his mother coming up the stairs already. He was afraid. She saw the condition of the room and she went into a rage. Uh, For reasons only an eight-year-old little boy would understand, he had collected about 300 old National Geographic magazines had him on a low shelf across one wall of the room. She came in, she looked at the room, and she pulled down all 300 of those magazines onto the floor. Ripped all the bed things off his bed. Tore down everything out of the closet. Grabbed him by the back of the head and said, now clean it and clean it right. Tearfully, he, he did that. Put all the magazines back made his bed to the best of his ability. 
put all the clothes back into the closet, she came up the steps again, said not good enough, tore down all the books, ripped up the bed again, tore down everything in the closet, grabbed him by the back of the head, stuck his head into those books and said, do it right. Now crying almost hysterically, he did it all again. Heard her steps coming up the steps, afraid of what he would face next. She looked around. She tore all the books down again. She ripped up the bed again. She tore all things down in the closet again. Grabbed him and said, you better do it right this time if you know what's good for you. He sat in the middle of his room, crying hysterically, feeling like there's no way he could win. This was supposed to be his protector. She started up the stairs, and his older sister stepped in front of her and said, Mom, stop. Listen to him. Look at him. Stop. That eight-year-old boy was me. What we're about to look at is close to my heart. How do you deal with being sinned against in your family? You see, although my story is unique, it's a universal human experience. Are you ready for this? Fasten your seatbelts and put on your crash helmets. Everybody has been sinned against. Everybody. Because no one gets perfect parents. No parent has perfect children. If you're a parent, that's not a surprise to you at this moment. No one has perfect siblings. We're all left with the legacy, the marks of that failure on us. Maybe you're a parent and you have adult children and you grieve at the state of your relationship with your children. Maybe you're an adult child and you're left with how to face the failure of your parents that have, has impacted your life. For some of us, those are, are moments of anger, and for other of us, it's horrible abandonment or abuse. But all of us are in that situation. I want to take you to what I think is an incredibly helpful passage of Scripture. But once you hear what I'm about to say, be prepared to be uncomfortable. God's not after your comfort. He's after your transformation. If he's working for your life to be comfortable, he's a massive failure. The church is not meant to be comfortable. The church is meant to be transformational. Preaching is not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to be transformational. 
If you're looking for a church that will make you comfortable, wow, you are messed up. You just missed the whole ball game. So turn to you, if you would, in your Bibles or your iPhones or iPads or whatever weird sad off-brand you're carrying. <laughs> to Romans 12. Now, for those of you taking notes, I want to help you here. Uh, I want to give you six words that I want you to look at and to think about. The first three words are the foundation of understanding how you respond to the sin, weakness, and failure of your family. Here's, the, here's those three words. Sacrifice, worship, will. Sacrifice, worship, will. The next three words are the application of those foundational principles to being sinned against. Here's the three words. Bless, peace, give. Okay? That's all I'm going to say to you. Six words. But it will seem like more. <laughs> Let me read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now what Paul is doing, I love how he says by the mercies of God because what he's about to call us to is totally counterintuitive. It's not natural to any of us. It's only by his mercy that we would ever live this way. And so he, he cries out for God's mercy as he starts. But this, what we're going to look at, is about the nowism of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that Jesus didn't did, just didn't die for your past forgiveness, and he didn't just die for your future hope. He died for everything you face right here, right now, in your everyday experience. What is the gospel for me right here, right now? What does it mean to live out of the gospel where at street level, in the dominant relationships of my life every day. And the most dominant relational sphere all of us have is our family. What does it look like to live out the gospel in relationship to these people who God ordained would be in my life? We gotta start with these foundational Christian commitments. Here's the first one. To offer your body as the living sacrifice. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, that animal of sacrifice died. Did you hear what I said? And so you cannot avoid that what we're being called to in this passage is to die to something. What is it that we are meant to die to? Because if you don't get this, 
You don't have a prayer of ever responding to the messed up people who will be in your life. By the way, you're part of them. We just tend to be more concerned about their mess than our mess, right? What, is it, what, is it, what does that mean? Well, this is where Scripture interprets Scripture. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says, you were bought with a price, therefore, can you finish it? You are not your own. Here's what you die to. You die to your ownership over you. You are either at street level living like you own you or you're living like someone greater than you owns you. There's no in between. And what Paul is saying is there's nothing that makes up you that you now own because you were bought. Bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't own your mentality. You don't own your psychology. You don't own your emotionality. You don't own your personality. You don't own your physicality. You don't own any of those stuff. All of those things belong to the Lord. Some of us are still living like we own us. And you're driven by this is my life. And listen, there is a short distance between this is my life and how dare you do this to me. Short distance. How about getting a little card, taping it to your morning mirror, the one you look at in the morning, suppressing your screams that the damage the night is done and write on it you don't own you so you see it every morning where right now in your relationships where right now in respect to your family are you acting as if you own you you in the center it's all about you your wants, your needs, your feelings. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Jesus came so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. You must not shrink your life down to the claustrophobic confines of my wants, my needs, my feelings. That's a dramatically ungodly way of living. I don't care if you are a Christian. It's God forgetting, it's God ignoring, it's me in the center of my world. Don't you ever do anything that's against me, my wants, my needs, my feelings, me in the center, and everything surrounds me, and my way of looking at relationships always has personal ownership driving it. It'll never work. It'll never work. It'll never produce anything good. Well, we could unpack that for the next several weeks, but we won't. Notice what he goes on. Which is your spiritual worship? Second word. What is he talking about there? It's a very interesting use of the word worship. I think we need to redefine our understanding of the word worship. If you ask the average Christian 
What comes into their mind when they think of worship, most Christians will say Sunday morning, right? A gathering, singing, an offering, a sermon, communion. And here's what you need to understand. It's very, very important to understand this. Worship is first your identity before it's ever your activity. You are a worshiper. You don't just worship on Sunday. You worship your way through every moment of every day. You could argue that the only thing a human being ever does is worship. Because everything you do, everything you say, in every location, every situation, every circumstance of your life is driven by worship, shaped by worship. Now you say, Paul, I don't understand what that means. Here's what it means. It means that something is claiming rulership over your heart. And whatever rules your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your words and behavior. Let me say that again. Whatever rules your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your words and behavior. You are either functionally doing what you're doing because of love for God and a desire for His glory, or you're serving in that moment the desire for, the pursuit of, some kind of God replacement. There's only two options offered to us in Romans 1 that discusses this. You're either worshiping functionally, street level, we're not talking Sunday here. You're either worshiping the creator or something in the creation. Oh, I'm not done yet. (laughs) The most seductive, attractive, deceptive God replacement is you. There's no idol more attractive, more seductive than the idol of self. And the idol of self is the source idol that opens your heart to all other forms of idolatry. Because if God is in his rightful place, if the glory of God and the purpose of God is ruling your heart, those other idols aren't attractive to you. They're attractive to you because God has been dethroned and you have been enthroned. And because of that, you have no defense against all those other idolatries. Now again, when you think of your relationships, you think of how you respond, what makes you happy, what makes you mad, what you are actually driven by, your relationships are shaped by the worship of whom? Be honest in this holy moment. You say, Paul, I'm not sure. Well, let me help you. I'm here to help. Think about this with me. I find this terribly convicting. I wrote this down this week, and I could feel the conviction hit my heart. Immediately ask for God's help. Here's the question. How much of your anger toward the people around you in the last few weeks had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God? Be honest. You're not typically angry 
because people are breaking the laws of God's kingdom. You're angry because they're breaking the laws of your kingdom. They're in the way of what you want, what you planned, what you think is comfortable, what you think you need. You, 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 you. There is no God replacement more dangerous to you than you. That's why we need God's mercy. Because I can run from a situation, I can run from a relationship, I can run from a location, but I can't run from me. I found when I try to run from me, I always show up with me at the end of the run. <laughs> so it works that way, doesn't it? That's two. These are foundational commitments. Now, these commitments should already be in your life. This is what it means to live in light of the gospel. And what I'm describing to you is freedom. This is what freedom looks like. It is horribly exhausting bondage to put yourself in the center of your world to make it all about you. An entitled demanding life is exhausting. And you'll have brokenness all around you that you have to deal with. This is freedom. This is a better way. This is beautiful. Third word, will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You accept, humbly accept the reality that your mind's jacked. Your mind needs to be renewed. And that's a progressive thing. There's no one in this room who has graduated from the school of spiritual mind removal, renewal. Including this man. There are places where my thinking still does not align with God's thinking. And the purpose of that renewal is so that as you're out there doing what you do in the world where you live, you will know what the will of God is. Because here's the agenda. Not my will, but yours be done. You are called to pray this prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done right here, right now, where I am at this particular moment. You can't live according to God's will if you don't know it. Now you don't get God's will by trying to read the future. That's not what he's talking about here. You get an understanding of the functional beauty of God's will from His Word. And this is a call to be a dedicated student of the Word of God because the agenda is no longer my spontaneous will. That's the old life. That's the conform to the world life where I just do whatever I feel like and whatever I want in the moment. What feels good to me, I do it. That's dead. That's gone. 
And so what replaces my will is God's will. And I cannot do that if I do not know what his will is. And we're not just talking about being faithful and listening to good preaching. You should, you should love good preaching. You should esteem it. But you must commit yourself to be an everyday student of the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit renews your mind through His Word. Don't be bothering all the people around you, asking them a question every five minutes on what you should do next. If you do that to your pastors, these poor guys are never going to make it. Because you've been lazy, and you haven't studied the Word of God, and you haven't grown in a renewal of mind, and so you don't have a clue what you're supposed to be doing. I'm saved and stupid. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay, there's the fundamental commitments. Ownership, that's the sacrifice. Worship, Will, God's will. Now what Romans 12 is, is it's a completely relational passage. And, and Paul makes two applications. The first application is to the body of Christ. The second application is to the situation in which you've been sinned against. And so think of God's will. Think of God's plan as I ask you this question, in the face of the massive sin of humanity against him, remember, the biblical theology of sin is every sin, no matter how horizontal it looks, is vertical. Every sin is a sin against the presence, purpose, and glory of God. When you sin, you don't first have a law problem, you have a worship problem that has produced a law problem. That's why the original commands of the Ten Commandments are what? They're about worship. Because if God is not in His rightful place, you won't do all those other, other things. So how did God, in the glory of His wisdom, in the beauty of his purpose, respond to the massive sin of humanity against him. Well, the whole narrative of the scripture tells us this. He did not choose to pour out his condemnation. He chose to pour forth his grace. There's your model. If you want to understand in a word what God is calling you to in the face of being sinned against, the word is grace. Now I want to say this to you because I think this is another word that's misunderstood. 
Grace is never permissive. Grace never calls wrong right. Grace is not closing your eyes to wrong and acting like wrong is okay. That's not God's way. The assumption of grace is that wrong is wrong, right? If wrong were not wrong, there would be no need for grace. I said this on Good Friday. Jesus didn't just say to the Father, Father, let's just close our eyes to all the wrong these people have done. They're kind of nice anyway. And let's just let them into our kingdom. Because that would have violated God's holy justice. He wouldn't do that. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. So grace is not about ignoring wrong. Grace is a way of dealing with wrong. You say, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Well, let me read for you. Verses 14 through 21. And pray. We have 10 minutes left. Woo. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Love never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In case you didn't notice, there's nothing in verses 14 through 21 that's natural for us. And just the very principles there ought to send all of us to our knees. God, this is not me. If I'm going to live this way, the thing I need to be rescued from is not from sinful people. The thing I need to be rescued from is me. Because this is not natural for me. So here, here we go. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I will confess that when someone wrongs me, my first thought is not how I can bless them. And you're smiling because you can relate. You see, blessing is wishing and working toward good in that person's life. It's wishing for and working toward good in that life. Curse is wishing for and working toward bad in that person's life. Wow. When, when you are dealing with parental failure or you're a parent and you're dealing with the criticism and the unthankfulness of your children are you looking for ways to do good to bless that person with what is good I'm getting blank stares so I guess the answer is no. 
Now, how, now, what does that actually mean? Well, he says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's sort of, why does he say that next? Why does he say bless and don't curse and then rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Here's why. Paul is a good pastor. And he understands what we do. When you've been wrong, the spontaneous response is to be emotionally cold and emotionally distant to separate yourself from that person. You may be in their presence, but you're not going to get me. You ever have somebody give you the silent treatment? You've gotten in the way of something that makes them happy, and they're not going to stab a knife in your chest, but they'll send to the throne of God and act as if you're dead for as long as it takes to satisfy their vengeance. Pretty ugly. Who are you willingly and purposely closing yourself off from? Who are you saying, you will have my physical presence, but you will not get my heart? That's a curse. And brothers and sisters, listen to this. If you only love people who deserve your love, you're going to spend a whole lot of your life not loving. Live in harmony with one another. I love this, this metaphor. What? Think about harmony. It's, it's a musical term. Uh, those notes that live in harmony with the melody don't just cooperate with the melody. Are you ready for this? They make the melody more beautiful. That's what harmony does. Harmony makes that melody note more gorgeous. You've experienced that when you hear the worship team break into harmony, and all of a sudden, that single melody note is more beautiful. That's what I'm called to do. How can I make this person's life more beautiful? How specific is that? That's what harmony does. Harmony doesn't, well, we can be nice alongside of one another. That's not harmony. Harmony beautifies. That's the metaphor. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He's talking about self-righteous, spiritual one-upmanship. I would have never thought. <laughs> of doing such a thing. I can't believe <laughs> that you would do such a thing. Now, when that person's listening to that, they're thinking, my, this is helpful. I'm really seeing my heart right now. I don't think so. Or, or what about prickly, self-righteous, theologically, theological always rightism? You know, maybe you're an adult who's come to Christ and your parents don't know the Lord. Oh, listen, it's very easy to be preachy 
and theologically condemning. That's never softened anyone's heart toward the Lord because it's awkward and uncomfortable. It's hurtful. People aren't transformed by knowing how much you know. Maybe bored. <laughs> but not transformed. Do you have a prideful response, a self-righteous response to the sin of people in your family? Be honest. Or is your response driven by humility? I will say this. In every one of those moments, you are more like them than unlike them. Because you're a sinner in need of grace. Sin levels the playing field. That's the first word, bless. Then he says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is the opposite of peace. Vengeance is war making. And so what this passage is saying is, the payback economy is dead. You repay no one evil for evil. Never, ever, ever, no one. I am blown away by the all-encompassing, all-inclusive nature of these words. No one at any time, never. Could he say it? any stronger. Never. Now I think the problem is that many of us are poor spiritual mathematicians. We actually think that evil plus evil will equal good. That's just dumb spiritual math. Evil plus evil only ever equals double the evil. If you want to increase the evil that already exists in that relationship, you do evil in the face of evil. If you want to see it get worse, if you want to see the devil have more of an opportunity, if you want to see more brokenness and more heartache and more division and more sadness and more anger, more familial chaos, you do evil in the sight of evil because evil only will ever produce more evil. It will never produce good. Don't let Satan lie to you that somehow that will do good. Think about this. If you have never had a moment where someone has gotten up in your face screaming angry and said hurtful things to you so close you can feel your breath, their breath. You've never said to yourself, Wow, this is a comfortable experience. I'm so thankful this person is in my life. I wish they, I wish they would do this more. Never. Why do we think that's going to work? 
And then he says this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Leave room for God's wrath. Now listen. There is a God of holy justice who will mete out his justice. It's just not your job. And then he says, leave room for my wrath. This is what he's saying. I want to put it in terms we can all understand. Get out of my way and stop trying to do my job. If you're trying to do by your vengeance what God alone can do by his vengeance, you have named yourself as the fourth member of the Trinity. There's only three seats. For those of you who are now theologically confused, and they're, and they're gloriously occupied. And then he says this. This is the final thing. In the face of that mis mis mistreatment, live a life of generosity. That's where the sins. Listen to this. To the contrary, if your enemy hung, is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The biblical story is an awesome, shocking, mind-numbing generosity story. It could be summarized by these, I think it's nine words. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. The sun shines on rebellious, ungodly people. They have food to eat, clothes to wear. On your worst day, God blesses you with his presence and his promises and his goodness. Give, give, give. In your family, you should be known for the generosity of the way that you live. Now what's the purpose of all of this? It's in this little weird physical metaphor that says in so doing you'll heap coals of fire on this person's head. That's a weird sort of image. And, there, and there's commentators that try to look for something in sort of New Testament culture that describes that and they've come up with all kinds of weird interpretations. Here's what I think He's after. The ultimate purpose of God is that he would soften the heart of that other person so that they would see their sin and cry out for his help. Your vengeance, your hostility, your emotional coldness will never soften that person's heart. You put metal on top of hot coal, what's going to happen to that metal? It will liquefy. It'll soften. You put a big hunk of fat in a skillet with coal underneath it, that will liquefy. God alone has the power to melt the heart of people who have hurt you. Don't try by your anger and vengeance to do that yourself. You bless, you live at peace, you give, and you watch what 
God will do. I have to tell you this real briefly. I was counseling a mom and dad. They came in broken. They had a 24-year-old son who announced that he was gay, but announcing that he was gay, he said, I hate you. I hate everything our house stood for. I hate your God. I want nothing to do with you. Walked out of their door. They asked me, what should I do? And I said, love your son. Find ways of blessing him. Celebrate his birthday. Lavish Christmas on him. Meet every need you can in that boy's life. They did that for four years. It was hard to do. He was hateful throughout that period of time. Four years, they heard a knock on their door. About seven o'clock in the evening, it was her son. Tears streaming down his face. He said, I don't know where I stand with my lifestyle, but I have no one. I'm all alone. And the only two people in the universe that I am sure love me is you and dad. Can I come home? That's God softening the heart of a person when we get out of the way and we let him do his work. Bless, live at peace, give, and watch what a powerful, gracious Redeemer can do. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. There's nothing that we've talked about today that's natural to us. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts this morning. May we confess our selfishness to you. May we commit ourselves again to your will and may even those who may have never entrusted themselves to you do that even this morning. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that your will is freedom. Thank you you've blessed us to live for something bigger than ourselves. May we bless. May we live at peace. May we give. And through that, may you soften hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give, and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.